Welcome to Archonnect Sessions, episode 89. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Amelia, Donna, and Ken. This week's show will be focused on the AIA's statement following last week's election of Donald Trump and the subsequent backlash among the architecture community, specifically the portion of the 89,000 AIA members that don't support the message that AIA CEO Robert Ivey penned. Ivey and the AIA president followed up with a video apology, which has calmed some while leaving many still very frustrated. The movement began on Twitter with the hashtag NotMyAIA, with the first instance tweeted by Catherine Darnstadt of Chicago-based Leighton Design. Catherine is here joining us today to share her perspective on this movement. Welcome, Catherine. It's great to have you back on our Connect Sessions. Hello, and thank you. I'll come back as long as you keep having me. <laughs> we love having you here. Indeed. So I wanted to start, but first for our listeners who aren't fully caught up on this about week-long debacle now, I'll give a brief timeline to things and then we'll have Catherine and Ken and Donna respond as AIA members to how this whole thing affected them initially. Um, so right after the election results came in on Wednesday, November 9th, Robert Ivey issued the statement and it's immediately circulated as something that architects were not not supportive of. The statement made no real critical remarks about Donald Trump's campaign and instead kind of was criticized for addressing kind of a blatant or a, a kind of blanket support of the candidate and his and his uh, initiatives. This obviously provoked some criticism on Twitter and elsewhere, people addressing many things that they felt that they either didn't agree with in the context of the announcement or that they just felt the AIA had acted unfairly as not representing their democratic values as members of the organization. So there were a lot of different concerns being thrown around and Darn said in her not my AIA hashtag is kind of we kind of started gathering them all together under that one thing. This has since become, this unrest, so to speak, in the architecture community has since become uh, more than national news. The Guardian picked it up, Quartz, uh, City Lab, a bunch of other major publications are reporting on this still ongoing frustration within the community over these statements and organizations such as local chapters of the AIA in Chicago, Baltimore, and others, as well as um, architecture schools and other organizing bodies uh, such as the um, Open Architecture Collaborative, the former, formerly architects, uh, formerly Architecture for Humanity, and uh, the Architecture Lobby have all released statements kind of to the effect of showing their frustration with these kinds of comments. First, I want to make clear that there's a lot of different concerns going on within the Not My AIA hashtag, that there is just one unified dissenting voice against the statement that Ivy made, that there's a lot of things going on, which I'm sure our, our AIA members here will be able to attest to. But it was such a loud dissenting voice that um, Ivy has, and as Paul mentioned, Ivy and the current president did issue a further video apology saying that the statement was initially tone deaf. But this has not at all done anything to necessarily resolve the discomfort and issues circulating within the architecture community. And so even though we're you know just about a week out from this, I'd like to have, Catherine, why don't you start with your your first reaction to Ivy's initial statement in support of Trump and also how you then came to start the not my AIA hashtag. Sure. So the initial statement came out, it was when I saw this a week ago, it was lacking in detail and information. And it honestly, in a way felt like it was generic to either candidate, really. It felt like something that was written before any results were, were put forward. But even thinking of that, it was incredibly tone deaf, as, as both Robert and Russ have said, to the type of environment the campaign created. Now we know the, you know, so when I first read that, there is an incredible frustration to think about how is this uh, organization claiming to speak for me, first and foremost? So I internalized it because there's so much about the campaign and the statement that I disagree with. And then how does it not take a stand to talk about, even if they do it in broader language, to say this is some we disavow any conversation of racism, sexism, misogyny, xenophobia, and we create spaces for equity and architecture has always worked with diverse clients and has been able to make spaces and places and buildings that challenge our notions of what a democratic future can be like. You know, you could have put that out and it doesn't have to be bipartisan. It doesn't have to specifically call out Trump. It doesn't have to be particularly detailed and it would have done a much better job than what the first statement was. So when I read that, I was just annoyed. First and foremost, I was appalled that there wasn't any courage to take a stand. And so my first tweet to that was, I think, AIA pledging membership will 
ignore racism and sexism for infrastructure dollars, you know, and and I called them spineless. And that's what it was, is they were able to me, it read as a posturing for future work in the new administration without condition. And that's what I found incredibly offensive as a woman and a minority in the field and who won in a city that has repeatedly been called a hellscape throughout the campaign. I took greater offense to that of looking at the organization and and seeing that they would readily use our faces as women, as people of color, as Muslims, as youth, the marketing materials, but then they don't have our back and couldn't stand up for this, our rights and values and our ethics as architects and our value as architects in a simple statement. So that's where it came from. And it was a series of rapid fire tweets just to put out the article because I felt like it was a full day and I didn't even see it. I didn't even know this. I was a day late to see in the statement. So I felt like, oh, I'm going to say my piece have the hashtag not my AIA didn't really think anything would come from it just added it as kind of one of those snarky statements that sometimes come out in the tweets from the firm when I'm the one tweeting them and <laughs> let it be <laughs> and I guess we couldn't let it be anymore so the response was enormous and pretty instantaneous how do you feel about that response I'm still shocked. I think for the first two days, it was an incredible conversation. And I was very happy to to, to hear so many different voices that I haven't heard from from before, not only on social media, but then private emails and texts and, and how interpretations were being made and how people were actually going in and, and composing and feeling the courage to compose those open letters and to make a stand as well. And I think that was very encouraging, not only from sparking a conversation, but then to also bring other people as an example to take a stand and make their statement, whether it was chapters themselves or architecture firms or even individual members. Ken, what about you? What was your first reaction to Ivy's initial statement simply as an AIA member? You know, I actually, I was pretty late to the table on this. I didn't see it until, in fact, I I either saw it late Friday or early Saturday morning. And because I was still digesting what had happened that week, I was I was part of the the Minneapolis protest on Thursday, so you know, so so that experience, I was still like wrapping my mind around that. So I think a lot of people were <laughs> were just, to be honest, weren't really thinking too much about the AIA. And then I have to I have to you know just be completely honest here. When I first read it, it didn't really strike me right away because it did come across as a form letter. You know, it really kind of had it fell into the lines of you know like like Catherine said, and you can almost say that this was probably copy and pasted from election to election, presidential election to presidential. There was really nothing contextual that kind of connected, except for maybe the numbers changed, you know, the the 89,000, maybe it was 80,000 in 2008, who knows? So here's where I think the rubber hits the road when it comes to, when it comes to blindness in in terms of uh, as a white architect and as a white person. It it took people, it took black architects, it took took non-gender identifying architects to kind of clue me in on where this was. And I went back and I read it and I'm like, what the fuck? And that's when I, that's when I, I'm like, there's my failing right there is that it took other people who this was going to hit harder than it was going to hit me because I've been, I've been telling, you know, my, I think I said this last week, you know, I know that this election has really no impact on my life. It's going to make my, you know, it's going to make my white world better. I mean, that's what I got out of this stupid fucking election, but it didn't make me feel any better. You know, I I didn't recognize this letter for what it was. And then I started to kind of deconstruct it and really take a look at it. And what was, you know, at first I'm like, yeah, why the fuck are we working with this why are we pledging our blood and sweat and our labor to this guy who does, first first and foremost doesn't fucking pay his his talent doesn't pay anybody i mean that was one of the, the commercials so as a, as an architect i was deeply offended that we were committing to something that we already know we have evidence to show it's not an opinion like some of these uh, lazy ass architects out there who are who are not on board with this but it's a, an objective fact it's a reality he doesn't pay his professionals so just on that level alone, just, I mean, you want to look at it just in terms of dollars and cents and not, if you want to whitewash away all this other, you know, this, oh, he's not really that way. Or I voted for Trump, but I'm not really a racist. I mean, he just doesn't pay his people. So, and then I'm like, well, you know, what would have taken the sting out of this? And, you know, there's a lot of different things they could have done. First off, it didn't have to have his signature. It didn't even have to have him sign it. He didn't have to countersign this stupid form letter. 
It could have just been issued as a PR and a public, just a release, and maybe it wouldn't have been so bad for him. He could have had some plausible deniability or some distance from it. But he, he, he basically countersigned and signed our professional livelihoods to this, to this guy who is, who has now in his White House, and I'm not going to call it alt-right. It's not alt-right. I'm going to say it what it is. He's a the white nationalist and a freaking, uh, you know. <sighs> We're talking about Steve Bannon, right? Yeah, I I think the Washington Post referred to him as a lizard wrapped in a Confederate flag. That's that was that was a satirical statement. And I'm not sure if that does well for the lizard. But, you know, yeah, (laughs) I also heard that Steve Bannon managed to uh, secure the um, alcoholic mechanic with an angry dog portion of our community. Nice. So it, it really wasn't until I started diving into it and understanding it and listening. That's that's one of the reasons, you know, why I started to really get I'm like, wow, this is really wow. Oh, wait, wait. And when you start to have the just having the conversation with other people and you start independently thinking about the the implications of this and you could see just the the fire, the t- you know, that was he lit them. I mean, he lit it and, and all of a sudden it was a fire he couldn't control. And and, you know. You know, I don't know what else to say. (laughs) I think that's where, because people are so passionate about both candidates, either they're like or they're dislike from it, of a candidate. And I think the AIA, they relied too much on their need to be bipartisan, where they overlooked, again, as an organization that has generational white male privilege at its core, by being too cautious on being bipartisan, in turn could not see the damage that the election had done to the members that they were trying to court and trying to highlight. And then once that came to the forefront, I think it came in a form of media. And once it resonated into the other magazines and other publications that were outside the architecture community, I think a response came a little bit faster. So we hit at a couple different notes with the argument and with not my AIA, and it it exposed flaws in the organization and cracks within the organization at multitude of levels. I still you know, understand that we have to come to terms with our own complicity of making the built environment incredibly unsafe spaces for generations from how we dealt with affordable housing or to how we ghettoized cities. I mean, or just made just bad, you know, tracked architecture. We have to understand that. And we have to, you know, that part of that understanding will help us create agency in the future. But we still haven't really come to terms on what that means. And our work and previous years of work as architects mean when we haven't done a good job at making a built environment and a safe environment for all people. Yeah, I I, I have to say, Ken, I was kind of in the same boat with you that um, I just read it as a form letter and didn't think that much about it. Catherine, I saw your tweet almost immediately, I think, because I follow you. And um, when I started seeing the stories about it, I went back and paid attention. My, I have to say, I'm, I'm, I'm a little more conservative in my view of this. I think initially I felt like it was just a, a boneheaded move, like some PR person had written it and they weren't, you know, they just weren't paying enough attention. And it was just tone deaf and sort of dumb to make that statement. I really question why it was put out so quickly. And so I started putting the thrust of my social media towards asking the question, who wrote this? Who vetted it within the organization? And who approved releasing it when it was released? I would still like those questions answered, and they have not been. But I wasn't willing to sort of say that I would resign or, you know, that I would would get not be a member anymore or whatever, based on one stupid statement. The follow-up, the immediate follow-up was worse. I mean, frankly, the immediate follow-up was was even more tone deaf. Still no discussion of the values that are written into our code of ethics as AIA members and written into our platform of what we're trying to achieve. No addressing of those things. So that made me a little angrier. At this point, At then though, when the video came out, I feel like either Bob and, and Russ are really good actors or they really are cowed and they realize they really stuck their foot in it with this thing. And I think that the AIA National is going to learn from this and move forward. I think it's going to need, as you were saying, Catherine, we still don't really understand how to deal with issues of equity and the built environment and how we in the past and even now 
continue to contribute to those problems, I think we're going to have to see a lot of funding start going towards the kinds of programs that the people who think this statement is fine don't want us to be spending our money on. But clearly, there's a big group of the membership that do think we should be spending our time and energy on equity issues, on understanding the impacts of our work in the world for people of all kinds, not only our clients, not only the people who hire us. We are not only business people. So I I would predict optimistically that we're going to see a change from the national on that kind of emphasis. So we'll see. Time will tell. Well, okay. So we, I think, and I think one thing that also became very illuminated that it, it still, it took not my AIA and digging into some of the deeper nuances of how the organization functions and where funding and where our member dues do go and how much the organization does have on hand a 60 plus million dollar annual revenue stream, you know, so understanding that and kind of coming to terms yeah. with those numbers, there's a there's a little bit of a trick here, right? It's a member organization. So it's an organ, it's a group of like minded businesses, not like minded people. And we keep right. wanting right. with equity issues, we keep wanting it to be a community based non for profit, a true 501c3 and be like minded people towards a common cause. But our common cause as a C6 as a membership organization, a chamber of commerce, it's, you know, it's the same as the yeah. NFL, essentially. Yeah. We're in it for the money. Yeah. <laughs> we all have to kind of come to terms with that and understand that the statement was really set in that tone. There is a potential for money, i.e. the infrastructure dollars. That was like the only positive thing that could be commented on in the original statement, right? This potential for half a trillion dollars of infrastructure improvements. So that's for all like-minded businesses, that would be great for us. But as like-minded people, I think the AIA has to actually start to create that as well in addition. So it's the, it's the profit in the people. And it's really, it has to be a triple bottom line to use that terrible phrase, but it should be that from an organizational standpoint. I just want to put in two cents from the perspective of someone who did not go to architecture school, is not an architect, is not an AIA member, is not any of these, like, it does not have any expectations necessarily that are shared by you guys about what should be expressed on the, in this kind of thing, because I am much more aligning myself with the cynical media perspective of, of that Don and Ken have spoken to, of just seeing this as some kind of pre, like a Mad Lib form letter, a, a PR statement that is existing, ready to go at any time and just be filled in with the necessary proper nouns and then sent out as a kind of knee-jerk reaction because they feel that they have to make some kind of statement and hope that aligning themselves with Obama's rhetoric of moving forward as one team on an, in a nation is going to be enough to kind of justify their ideas of just soft compliance with what's going on. I think, though, the fact that this particular could be seen out of context as bland within context obviously gets a completely different reading. The reactions to it, I think, are indicative of so many other professions right now that are going through any type of soul searching in the context of this election. And whether it's a profession or individually, It's just this idea that how things have been going before now are threatened in a way that whatever changes we wanted to make are now even more dire that we try to make them and that the ways that we're going to have to go about doing them cannot be done necessarily in the same way that we might have thought business as usual would have brought them around previously. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this election, I think, has really represented a major sea change in the way that we see everything. I mean, it's just it kind of turned everything upside down. And Going back to what what you said, Donna, I tend to agree with you. I've been seeing a lot of statements being made both, you know, officially from from corporations, from individuals that that seem to be, you know, well-intended but ill-conceived because the gravity of the situation may not be taken into consideration. You know, I think that there is kind of a standard response after an event like this. I think it's similar to Obama's response, you know, like we were going to work together and, you know, he was, he had a good meeting with Donald Trump and, you know, that kind of positive, like, let's move forward in a great way kind of, kind of attitude while we're all, you know, watching these dangerous people get appointed to his cabinet. You know, it's not it's not that easy this time. And I think that I think it's this situation is forcing us to be more careful about how we position everything. I mean, I think that what what's happened here is that it's it's exposed this kind of deep seated feeling that apparently a lot of people in the country have that Donald Trump has stirred up and it's coming up to the surface and it's making people feel like 
this kind of suppressed hatred or racism or misogyny or whatever, it's now okay to express that. You know, I think that as a country, we've been doing that. Most of the people that feel that way have been doing a good job at suppressing that. And that's good. I mean, it has to be suppressed for the good of, of, of our country and good of our relationships. But it feels like it's starting to be acceptable to, to not do that. And it's forcing us to reassess how we communicate right now. And I think in, in terms of this letter, I don't think that was really considered. I think they gave out the uh, the standard press release. And I've been really curious about what kind of statements the AIA has made in uh, previous elections. And we did a bunch of research today. We couldn't find anything. Um, if anybody out there listening has any copies of AIA statements that were made when Obama won or when George W. Bush won, please send it to us so we can see, you know, and compare us. I think, I think that could uh, shine some light on, you know, their process and in, in how to react to these types of events. And uh, just to follow up on that, Paul, I think that there's obviously a, a really tense distinction happening that is incredibly difficult to make. And I'm not a Supreme Court justice, so I'm also not going to be able to make it. But distinguishing between truly allowing and supporting and celebrating free speech and knowing how to, as we're learning with things like Facebook and Google and Twitter, all kind of instituting these new means of control over hate speech and such, when it does cross that line over into something that is no longer protected by First Amendment and instead is only just something that is going to perpetuate hatred. And in the course of like this kind of conversation around the like the idea that we're talking about hate speech in the context of this AIA statement that is like, even though it does have a lot of these fraught ideas contained within it as we're kind of unraveling has nothing that equates with hate speech in it. Like we should make that very clear. And that's in no way something that would be intended coming out of this kind of thing. But these lines being blurred is exactly what now everyone is kind of being forced to contend with. And I think that in any other year, this would have passed as completely fine. And that part of the, and I don't want to interpret the intentions of everyone who's associated with the not my AAA hashtag, but part of this big response and kind of dissent isn't about necessarily like retracting or getting out of the AIA, that so much of moving forward as one is about protest, is about having some kind of level of like constructive dialogue that is nonetheless dissenting. I think that that's, they're not mutually exclusive things and that we need to have one to get to the eventual other. Well, well, yeah, exactly. You have to take the emotional response, which was the start of Not My AIA and people expressing their concerns and distress with the statement and turn it into objective and productive action. And mm -hmm. I think now a week into it, that's starting to form. And I, in my opinion, I feel the AIA at a national level is starting to understand the need to bring more dissenting voices to the table to understand where their gaps and, and inability to be aware are. Mm -hmm. um, I feel the chapters uniquely have already been doing it. That's the one thing that was, for me, very heartening to, to see chapters clarify statements of equity, of inclusion, of what they will and will not tolerate and call it out very clearly. So that, to me, was wonderful to see. So to know that there wasn't yeah. a uniformity and chapters are working very hyper-local around their own context to continue those ethical means of what we what we do as architects. You know, so not to not to belabor a point that I've belabored over over and over over again. Um, <laughs> but you know, the AIA has really represented the parts of my life that I really have tried to forget. And and in the sense that look, I never identified with I, I don't identify with most architects because for me, growing up as a kid who didn't have a lot of money, who didn't think he could be an architect because people always told you told me that you know you have to be good at math to do that, and I wasn't, and uh, I wasn't you know I didn't come from an affluent family, it wasn't a middle class family, it was a poor family, and when I look at these people, they remind me of all of the people that have always stood in my way and made fun of me for wearing you know dirty clothes or not being clean or not having things or, you know, my mom's car is banged up and I'm driving a banged up car. So they always have always represented to me the worst parts of my life, the, the abuse, the bullying. And one thing that was so frustrating about, and I'm not done beating up these guys because the, the one thing that was, you know, there's so many galling things about the statement, right? It showed zero understanding of context. You have to ask yourself the question, what was the sense of urgency that needed to have this statement the day after the election? We didn't even have a transition team in place. And we have a we had now we have some kind of sense of what that looks like, what the sense of what the government looks like. And now we have a guy in there who doesn't fucking believe who's he's gonna put up for EPA who doesn't believe in climate change. Well, what are we gonna work with on that? 
we don't work with a with a guy who believes in in fairy tales and and things that come down from the sky that are you know going to touch us on our shoulder and tell us we're going to a better place and that's how we're going to get through all of this it's bullshit so at least let this jerk off fill out his cabinet and then we can say let's like make an assessment here let's see if there's actually anybody we can find common ground with Oh, guess what? It's not this administration. Maybe it's Congress. We raised this year to date, year to date, $96,000 in ARCAPAC. That doesn't buy you a fucking throat lozenge in D.C. What the hell are we doing? Spending time tying ourselves to this absolutely hideous individual who will go down crushing this entire fucking planet with his mere existence. I mean, it is galling beyond. It is so the fact that the apology, the 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 apology on video. When soon as I got that link from from Susan Surface, I looked at it and I just just rolled my eyes. I've never seen something so ill conceived. I mean, you could have put a four year old up there and they could have give you a better sense of what your values are. They had to read them from a cue card. They had to know when to touch their heart to say how deeply sorry they felt. I mean, two white guys. I mean, we have a profession that is deeply white. We have two white guys apologizing, which is fine, which is fine. But you know what? They are deeply cynical individuals who are at the top of the pyramid of this organization. And if the bottom lifts up and tips them over, I think the profession will be better for it. The fact that we're having a discussion right now shows that, you know what? You asked for us to be engaged. Well, this is what engagement looks like. This is what democracy looks like in this organization. You ask for engagement, you're getting engagement. And I don't think anyone is done with you guys. Just today, we had another piece from representing black architects. I mean, it is going to continue. We have Yale students who are saying that we have ASLA now writing stuff. ASLA. Associates for Landscape Architecture. They're writing a piece and their piece was deeply cutting. It was excoriating. It was probably the, the most wicked cut down of the of this of that AIA statement last week. These guys, I, I said it on I think Sunday, they need to resign. And they need to resign like yesterday. And it shouldn't stop until they do. I mean, if you want to demonstrate, if you want to demonstrate to people that you heard them, then, you know, listening sessions without action is just absolute horseshit. Horseshit. You know, it's it's a waste of time. Resign. The fact that he they won't even come on to talk about this. I mean, they go on to every other one because they're safe. They can go talk to KCRW and they can get their little softball questions and they can they can practice it. But you know what? Come here, face, face Catherine, face Mitch McEwen, face some of the other people who are out there who are just burning up the, up the social media. And then talk to me about, I look up. Oh, I want to look up and see you gone. (laughs) Well, so we're at this point, clearly a juncture where I, at least I imagine that this video statement has kind of exhausted the AIA's attention with this issue that they do not wish, at least from that, from Ivy's level, do not wish to make really any further statements or official statements in response to this whole thing. So I'm wondering now for you guys, what kind of actions or what kind of ideas do you think you'll try to now become a little bit more focused on in order to whether it's something just as simple as making sure something like this doesn't happen again, or just to kind of keep the efforts going? And what are the kinds of things that you would want to see happen either in your local chapters or at the national level to incorporate these issues? I'll go first. I think one of the things that I'm I'm seeing is now that there's really national attention, I think the opportunity is to create a dissenting and accountability (laughs) team of organizations that felt very strongly about how the statement excluded them and how do we start to create principles or expand on our ethics um, in more clear terms to make sure that we understand as professionals how we should go about working in this new type of environment where there is going to be more radical opinions and potentially more blatant isms coming to the surface, so to speak. So I think with that, how do you bring some of those voices to the table? How do you create a a platform of principles for them to talk to the AIA about? And how do you create and how do you pull all those organizations together into a powerful force to change the organization and um, give the feedback that they've always wanted in a meaningful and productive way? That's where I see it going forward. You know, you have to go from the emotional to the objection and you have to make it actionable or else this could, you know, 
this could be a blip. I mean, we got lucky that any other media source wanted to pick up the story. Otherwise, it would exist only within the 89,000 members and only the like 1,000 that are on Twitter. You know, we still have an issue where the statements and the retractions and the apologies are still not on the AIA's website. So they still exist in a bubble. Right. They've taken the statement down. <laughs> I mean, so none of none of this is really public facing. And I think that should be the first step of just kind of having it out there, owning it and putting something forth publicly, you know, meaning on your website, you know, out to your membership and out to the world about how you feel about this, because right now it doesn't exist. None of this really exists uh, in, in a formal AIA sense. It exists in a documentation by other organizations and other media outlets of what the AIA did. That was That's a great point. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's a great point. And I, I guess I would still call for this thing that I haven't heard yet. Who wrote this statement? Did the PR people write it? Did Bob write it three weeks ago, not knowing, you know, what was coming? Like, who wrote this thing? Who put those first words out? I would like to know that. Who reviewed it and vetted it? And I have talked about it, my local chapter, when we took a statement on a recent transit issue, the executive committee wrote a statement, we put it out to all of our members and said, if you have substantial issues with this statement, let us know, but we intend to put it out to the public on this date. And this is your chance to make your opinion of it known. So we went through this serious vetting process to make sure that we were representing our members. We have no idea of what that process is at the AIA national level right now. They have not answered that in any way that I have seen. Right. And I mean, I think at the core, it calls to not only who wrote it, but the timing of it. There was way too fast. It was was. without detail. And, you know, frankly, the statement and the power of our organization, as was mentioned, we only have we can only buy Tic Tacs in Congress, right? Because we only raised (laughs) $97,000, our only 89,000 members nationwide. I mean, we could have not released a statement as an organization and life would have also gone on. (laughs) So I think there's a there's a lot to unpack to understand how this happened and where the errors were and how to improve on that in the future, because this could have all been avoided by just not saying anything. But that wouldn't have been the right statement either to ignore what the built environment does and what it has done during the election and specifically with how the president elect has manipulated the built environment to achieve goals that were less than democratic. You know, make no mistake about it. This statement and the mistakes that were made will ultimately be a good thing, maybe not for the organization, but for the profession as a whole, because we're actually having a discussion about it. So he can't take, this can't be a a victory for him in any sense, because the discussion that has been like not that has not been had and not been had on a national level, at least among many architects, is now being had. And it's talking about what is the value of a professional organization if it doesn't truly represent its values or its membership. So in that sense, I can't even bring myself to thank him, but just to say that it's actually the mistakes that were made actually, I think will bear fruit in some shape or form. And I think that'll be the best thing to come out of this. Ultimately, I really do think the longer they stay, the longer whoever the they is, the longer they don't answer the questions that Donna has posed, the longer they go without kind of getting at some of the fundamental issues, the more problematic it is for them to keep membership, to, to be able to govern effectively and to actually lead an organization of 89,000, which they're trying to grow every year. I mean, what possible message could it send to future architects who are thinking about becoming associates and then locking themselves up in a profession that doesn't care? I mean, we've always known, at least I've always had the sense that they've really never really cared about what the membership had to say. I mean, I was in Philadelphia. I lambasted them on my own. I took heat from my local because I didn't check in with them. And I didn't really... I was didn't care what my local had to say. I was going to go up there and say my piece about the about them just focusing on money. It didn't matter who it came from. You know, if we have membership in there that don't like our values, piss off. Join something else. You know, I mean, go away. If you don't believe in climate change and you believe in some, you know, fairy about the, you know, some future world, then go away. If you think that prisons are great things for architects to design, then Go away. If you think that women in this profession are too well represented, then leave. <laughs> if you think that black, gay, trans, lesbian are getting too much publicity in their design awards, then 
there's the door. You don't have to stay. Because you know what? That this this world, it, Trump may have won and he may have gotten his electoral count that he needed to be president. He didn't win the country. He didn't win the majority. And we're going to get past this jag off and we're going to get past whoever's at the EIA and we're going to make this world the way we want to make it. And, you know, for all of those, you know, people who don't believe that, just go away. Please. I mean, if you don't want to be part of the solution, then just we already know you believe there's a flat earth society out there. Just take a walk off the edge. And end it <laughs> so I would like to talk a little about why maybe I was a little slower to respond to this whole contretemps. Is that the correct pronunciation? I have been so active the last five, six years in AIA, in initiatives that are so important and that I have felt have been very well supported by national. You know, I was part of the Emerging Professionals Summit, the first one, and the notion there that young people young people of color, especially, or of, of different backgrounds, were struggling dealing with our profession. That was something that the AIA nationals seemed to be acknowledging and really focusing on changing. So I've had so many arguments on Arconnect or elsewhere with people who say, oh, AIA is just a bunch of old white guys, when the face that I was seeing of the organization was not at all that. Or if they were old white guys, they were, as you said, Catherine, and I love this phrasing, they were like-minded with me about these issues and with the, the young people. People who were concerned. So I think I am maybe in a bubble in the AIA where I'm with a bunch of people who I think are really concerned about the status of women, the status of people of color, the status of people trying to find an alternate path that's not a traditional practice path. And I've had very little interest, frankly, in the last decade in sort of large scale traditional practice. I haven't been doing it. And, uh, you know, I, as far as I can see, those people are making plenty of money. So I have been focused on mission that I thought was important. So maybe I do live in a bubble. Catherine, I think maybe you've been a little outside that bubble more so, even though in many ways you are very much more in it. Yeah, I yeah, I definitely will admit I live in multiple little bubbles. <laughs> I'm aware of that enough. I think you're right. I was at the first Emerging Professional Summit. And I think what the other thing that I see and what makes me advocate for the profession more strongly than I do for the organization is that the majority of my peers who are starting firms are women-led, are minorities, are um, individuals of color, uh, are, are so diverse. And I, I see that and that encourages me. And so when as a representative uh, embodying those principles that the AA wants to push forward, I, I do, I see the potential in the future of the organization because I, I feel that I am a part of it, right? If we want to bring in more people that look like me, that have a varied opinion, that are going to bring the average age down a decade, right. yeah, we have to, we have to think very differently. So I've never really worked within the, and I couldn't ever work within the traditional white male role because I, I wasn't ever presented to me and I was never interested in it. And that was part of the confrontation of the statement. It was the blandness of it, but it was also yeah. the underlying privilege that made it okay to say that and not understand how much hurt there is within the organization and not understanding that the members are not a homogenous group. So much that I've seen in the not my AIA hashtag has had the refrain of architecture is political. Architecture can never not be political. And of course, that is completely contrary to the AIA's whole founding idea of that it is not a partisan and never comments specifically on political things. Of course, it's there to lobby for the interests of its constituents, but it does not engage in those kinds of debates. Do you think the AIA can, in an infinitude, like for the indefinite future of its existence, continue under that basic premise? Maybe not infinitely, but maybe just specifically within these next four years. Is that something that it can realistically should do on behalf of its constituents who seem to believe that, for at least many loud ones, seem to believe that those two things are indeed inseparable? Well, it's, it's a lie. It's a, that premise is a lie. And you could go, buildings, sure, they're an object, they are nonpartisan. The process and the production of buildings is inherently political. And you could go to any session at any convention or local chapter and you could, and someone will tell you an anecdotal story about the political process that it took to get that zoning variation, to get, you know, the client to do X, Y, Z, to get the funding. It's a political thing. And I think we want to detach that in the end and just enjoy the object, which is by, you know, 
honoring and honoring the object causes its own issues, right, of whether it looks good versus works good. But we have to acknowledge that the the process of creating buildings and the production of creating buildings is a, an inherently political process because the built environment exists at the intersection of policy and design. It's inextricably linked and we can't pretend that it's otherwise. Yeah. And and I can't imagine how that could ever be separated. I know it seems almost like naive that I had to bring it up, but it just is something that seems so almost comically at opposition to one another when there is this kind of plodding along in the AIA's desire to keep business as usual, which is really the what seems like the main missed opportunity here is that business as usual has trumped the idea of so-called being on the right side of history or having some kind of um, registered statement of we saw something happening that we weren't okay with, and we made it clear in some kind of public statement that we're not going to stand for this. So when you just think about how the AIA went hat in hand, basically, and said talked about infrastructure. So what does that really mean? What is infrastructure? No one asks the question. But, you know, for the most part, infrastructure, GSA, we get, I mean, I know architects get GSA contracts. Better known designers are actually getting those contracts, Morphosis and Jeannie Gang and, all, and uh, Julie Snow and, and a lot of these other design-oriented firms are getting that. And I think that's kind of a new phenomenon, probably with, maybe within the past 20 years. I don't, I don't really know. I'm just kind of throwing a number out there. But Generally speaking, when you think about a half a trillion dollars in infrastructure improvements, and, and given the fact that we know that it's a, it's a supply side a Republican, whatever, running the running the show in the entire government, we know that it means nothing to do with solar. We we know that's not anything that's going to happen. We know it has nothing to do with any real energy grid system, any energy grid issues. So what does it really leave us with? It leaves us, leaves us with more highways, more bridges, more those kinds of things. And then you start asking yourself, well, how can a bridge or how can a highway be political? And then I start thinking about where I was on Thursday on Interstate 94 in Minneapolis. And I know a little bit about, I mean, I'm not from here, but I know a little bit uh, through some design uh, reviews I sat on and it just blew me away about the history of transit and and separating and destroying uh, black communities here in, in, in the Twin Cities. And Twin Cities is not, it's not unique to the Twin Cities. It's all over. But so when people were asking me, why are you on the highway protesting? And I said, well, why? Because this highway destroyed major black community in St. Paul, just destroyed it, just eradicated it. It cut off North, then it travels North and it, it cut off North Minneapolis and created a really uh, a depressed area of Minneapolis so that North Minneapolis doesn't even feel like it's really part of Minneapolis. It doesn't. And so there's it's created its infrastructure is inherently built on the backs of black and brown peoples in this country. I mean, we have a pipeline that's cutting through Indian burial territory. I mean, what are we talking about it's not political it is infuriating how obtuse these people are to say that it's not political just admit i mean look as we grow and as we get a better sense of where our places in the world as white architects and as white people we have to recognize that if there if people are going around saying the system is broken and it's broken for them why isn't it broken for other people so the reason why these majority of white middle class people voted for Donald Trump is they said the system's broken it's broken for them well isn't it broken for everybody then how why is it just broken for you who is who's getting something? Well, it seems like that most white people, since there are more white people in this country, it seems like more white people are getting shit and getting shit. <laughs> I mean, like getting stuff yeah. than a whole lot of other people. And when black and brown people and indigenous people get stuff, they get stuff laid on top of them. So they're under stuff. And there are other stuff for other white people to get through, to get their oil, to get their transportation to their stupid football stadium. Which we, <laughs> you know, I mean, it just I, I can't imagine if they just admit, I mean, I don't know why it's so difficult. They're older guys. Their time on this planet is, is waning away. Bob used to run a magazine. Great. You can freely admit these things with no repercussions whatsoever. It just come out. Let that part of yourself go and just fully embrace what you're not seeing. And maybe you'll get to know a little bit more about what's actually happening to people's when you go with your hat looking for infrastructure dollars. 
So I think it's to come to our time to kind of put a stake in this and uh, leave it for the next time we get some other statement from the AIA or this conversation develops a little bit more. But I'd like to have... Uh, just... or, or until the country is great again. Oh, yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, do we have that Twitter alert set up to let us know when the country <laughs> becomes great again? That'd be really good. Okay, I'll make I'll make sure our interns on that. But just before we close out, I'd like to have a chance just for everyone to share any final statements or not not anything that formal, but just like final thoughts about this subject as as we know that it is still coming together and it is still very um very tense in a way or very active. So Donna, can we start with you? I mean, not not only specifically to this AIA issue, but in general to this election and to the national conversation that's going on right now. I'm going to be 50 very soon, and I feel stronger and more excited about things right now pretty much than ever. I cried on election night, but I feel so strong and so empowered right now to keep fighting for the things that I think are right. And and it feels good. And I it feels good to know that as I get older, I'm becoming stronger and more in what some people would term radical. I'm not going to put up with bullshit anymore. I, I'm just done. I'm, it's too late. So so as I said, I, I responded to this AIA statement initially sort of just didn't really pay it much attention, but I need to pay attention to things more closely and I'm feeling good about doing it. So yeah, I'm kicking ass and taking names. That's my goal. <laughs> Speak truth to power, Donna. That's right. <laughs> Ken, what about you? Well, I'll start off with, uh, I'd like to recommend three books that, and one of which I've actually read and, and I've, I've read some James Baldwin and I'm going to get back to him very shortly, but any James Baldwin book, I would recommend. I've had friends recommend uh, many books by him and I've got a, a ton on my, my audio books. One of my absolute all-time favorite books happened to be a book I got in college. I had to read, forced to read in college. And I was, I tore through that book in like three days because it was the most amazing book I had ever read in my entire life. Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man. And uh, the next one is Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow. I would suggest anything by Baldwin in those two books and then uh, watch 13th on Netflix, Netflix props. So maybe I'll get a free Netflix account. <sighs> it's hard for me to end it on a humorous note, but apparently the AI is, is the cuckening is coming and the uh, we're getting, you know, I mean, look, I think the profession that I decided to join, even despite my problems with it, I think there's, I mean, I'm, I'm super excited by the people leading this. And I, I, I know I talked a lot today and I know I spoke with a lot of anger, but it's hard for me to be present around this topic, uh, around these issues, especially around what's going to be happening in a, in a few short weeks. But I'm really excited by all of the people leading it. And, and I can't be, I don't think I can be a real leader because I'm too angry. I don't think I would do the cause justice by lending my voice. Um, maybe on a podcast, I could do that. I get to be somebody else, but I would much rather be a foot soldier in that and support the people who are actually taking a charge and, you know, putting themselves out on the line and not to step back, but just to make sure that they're supported. And I'm fully behind everybody's efforts at focusing their energy and being present in their words and, and, and actually adding something constructive where I just want to burn shit down. So I thank everybody for doing that. So that's about it. I just want to say that, I mean, it's such, as I mentioned earlier, it's such a, it's such a strange time right now. So many people in this country did not predict what was what was happening. We did not elect a president that represents anything that any previous president, at least in our lifetime, represents. So, you know, the protesting and the backlash and the public commentary about what's going on, I think is so important, you know, regardless of how many accusations of whining and crying that that are coming from from either Trump supporters or, or also liberals that just want to move it forward. Yeah, I'm getting I'm getting that kind of um, I'm hearing that from both sides. I, I don't like to get too political, but I mean, we're looking at taking on a president that has proven throughout his life to be dedicated to nobody but himself. He's an incredibly selfish man that likes to brag about his his own personal wealth. He's given very, very little of this wealth that he claims is huge, but refuses to actually be specific about it. He's given very little of it to anybody else very little to charity. And this is somebody that's supposed to be representing the country selflessly. It's a scary, scary thought. And as he continues putting people in extremely high levels of power that represent hatred and bigotry and racism, I mean, it's, we're, we're in a, we're in a position that cannot 
be ignored. So I think the more people speak out and continue protesting yet also move forward, you know, I mean, I, we, we, we have to, we have to balance that, you know, we have to, we have to move forward the best we can, but we also need to continue this discussion and, and just continue raising the awareness of these issues because some of these, you know, this transformation that we've been seeing, I'm seeing just in social media and from talking to people is changing people's attitudes. And I don't know if it's subconsciously or consciously or what, but people are starting to accept these changes and some of these dangerous changes that are happening should not be accepted. So I applaud anybody who continues the fight. The, the conversation needs to continue. People need to get together from both sides and, and get a better understanding of where everybody in this country is is coming from. Obviously, there's a lot of ignorance from both sides, both the uh, the liberal and conservative sides. But yeah, no, I, I, I like I like how this is going. Um, I like the kind of response and I hope to see more of it. Catherine. We give you, we, we reserve for you the special <laughs> final spot. What do you have to say? I agree with the points said earlier, and you're really seeing what advocacy for the organization and the profession is going to look like more moving forward. To give the analogy that everyone, every architect can understand, we ha- are working in with an administration that's, it's a client without a brief, without a budget. <laughs> without any of that. And we know what happens so quickly, we get fucked by that, right? That's how we lose money. That's how we lose our integrity. And we have to go beyond these traditional passive supplicant ways of getting work and start to have a voice again and an agency and to to have the pushback against issues that we feel don't align with our professional or personal ethics. You know, myself, I have a very strong bias for action. That's how the firm operates. That's how I operate as an individual. And the way that we present our work or how we advocate for our work as architects and our and our work in the firm doesn't always fit within the organization. You know, sometimes we have to tone things down or, you know, are told to heal a little bit. But I mean, resounding silence is not my medium at all. And the fact that we constantly go back to the Whitney Young quote as a reminder of what we need to do as architects and what and who we need to serve and what our buildings need to create within the world, that quote is more applicable than ever. So are we going to be still be hearing that in four years or are we going to understand that we finally have to make a stand in one way or another as an ethical organization focused on the production of of safe spaces that are resilient to the hatred, the misogyny, and the climate change that we're going to be experiencing. It's multifaceted. There's a new normal. There's a new reality. Our parameters are very different, and we need to adjust accordingly. Well, yeah. Bravo. Um, Thank you so much, Catherine, for sharing your valuable insight and perspective on this issue. And thanks for starting this movement that, that really gained a lot of attention and obviously had really positive effects already. And thanks to everybody out there listening. Please, you know, this is a uh, a very divisive issue that I'm sure many of you completely disagree with us about. And we are more than happy to hear your your thoughts. So let us know. Send us an email to connect at arcnet.com and tell us uh, why you think we're wrong on, on some of these issues. And those of us that agree with us, we'd love to hear from you too. So next week is Thanksgiving week. We're not going to be releasing in our connect sessions, nor will we be releasing a one-to-one. But starting today, which is Wednesday, the day before this is being released, we have begun releasing our conversations from the Next Up LA River Talk. And those consist of eight conversations with people heavily invested in the LA River project in Los Angeles. And the first one was released today with uh, Amelia's conversation with KCRW's Francis Anderson and the LA Times architecture critic Christopher Hawthorne. So check that out. And tomorrow there will be another one. And they're really short, 15 minutes. So it's super easy to listen to. So we expect you to listen to all eight of them. (laughs) They're coming out on the weekends too. All right. Thanks, everybody. Talk to you all in two weeks. Thanks so much. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving.